Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, uh, Nader, for that really nice introduction. And it's a real honor and privilege to be here to present this lecture. Um, I'm going to talk about the interactions between um, physical science and mathematical science, that, the interaction of those with uh, the new subject of data science. And, um, and it's, been, it's been a very fruitful thing to, to watch and to, to be, and to be part of. And I think it's very fitting that to, to talk about this here at this new institution of, of uh, New York University at Abu Dhabi, where there's, there's with the boundless potential that, that is here. And, uh, and uh, I, it's, it's such an exciting place. And I think that the, um, and I hope you'll see some of the, that, that um, this data science has some of the excitement that's reflected in that. Um, I'm, gonna, part of, I'm gonna describe some, some of the things I'll describe will be work that I've done with, um, with a few different people uh, listed here. I, I won't go through the names, but um, that, and, and you, these are all people from UCLA, either currently there, Stan Osher is a math professor, and, and Vidvaz Oslins is a, is, a, is, a, um, is a material scientist, and, they've, and then they've gone on to other places. Um, as um, Nader said, I, I worked for some years as the director of, the, of IPAM, and so um, much of what I'm going to say is reflected in, reflects that, and, it, and it's based on uh, talks that I've heard and interactions I've had with the people doing these things. So um, the, the, the story I want to describe in a little more detail is that the, um, let's see, I think it works better if I point here, that over the, that over the last uh, uh, two or three decades, there's been um, a, an lively interaction between, between uh, mathematical science and data science. And, um, and a lot of ideas from, from PDEs have gone into information science. And I'm going to give examples from um, image processing. Um, then, then subsequent to that, there was really rapid progress in information science and data science and, um, and, and that produced its own new mathematical methods. And two really striking examples of that are compressed sensing, which started around 2004 or 2006, and then more recently, machine learning, which has exploded from about five years ago on. It's hard to believe that it's only five years because of the uh, tremendous impact it's had on, on what we do. Probably every one of you has a cell phone that, that, is, that has in it speech recognition and some image recognition. And it's, which, is, which are powered by this machine learning. And, um, and now we're starting to see a bit of the opposite direction of flow of ideas from data science and information science into um, mathematical sciences and physical sciences. So the, the problem I'm going to start with is, is image denoising, um, an, image, an image processing task. Um, here's, a, here's a picture that illustrates it. On the, on the left side, we have a, a photo, which is, um, uh, I, I got this out of a, a, a book by Tony Chan. It's a reference there and Jackie Shen on, on um, image processing. So, they, so here's a picture. It's got, a, it's got the cover of a book by Feynman, a rather old-fashioned looking cell phone. Um, and, um, 
Um, and then a couple other items. And here you see the, on the right, you can see a grainy image of that where they've added a certain amount of random noise to the, to the image. And noise comes in images for lots of different reasons. It can be inserted there from, the, from, the, um, from dirt or age or deterioration. It could be from the process of creating the image or other things. And what we'd like to do is start from, from, this, um, from this noisy image. We'd like to get back to the closer to the original image and get rid of the noise. Um, now, there's a classic way to do this, which is, um, uh, is of, of denoising that comes from using a, what's called the Wiener filter. And um, the idea is that noise is random or rapidly oscillating in, in position. And so it can be canceled by some local averaging. If, if there's randomness, it goes up and down. And if you average out, the ups and the downs cancel out in some way. Um, and so um, to describe this mathematically, we, um, we, we, I will, I'll describe the original noisy image as a function, u0, of x that goes from a position on, a, you know, on the image. The image is, a, the image is a, say, a piece of paper. Uh, on, printed on the, ima the, Im uh, the image is printed on it. And, the, um, and we'll think of a grayscale map. It could be color, but a function of position that takes you to the grayscale. And then the Wiener filter transforms you to a, a I'll call it UW, which is a, uh, an average of, the, of this kernel, K epsilon, uh, against, uh, against the, the uh, noisy image U0. And it comes from this formula. It's an integral, so-called convolution integral. And, um, and this is just a function that is uh, localized because so, you want to do the averaging locally. You don't want to smear out the features of the image. You want to you average the noise, smear out the noise in order to partially cancel it. Um, this, this Wiener filter can be thought of as a PDE. And, and so I, I, um, what I, what I, the, the, um, the main point of this is to see how methods from differential equations are coming into image processing and other parts of data science. And so um, this interpretation of a Wiener filter as, a differential, as coming from a differential equation is useful to, in, in that um, interaction. So the, uh, here's, here's just the, the function I wrote down before, where we take our, our original noisy image and we produce this filtered image by averaging it um, against this kernel, um, k epsilon. And that, that can be described in the following way as the um, k, in fact, solves a differential equation, a partial differential equation. The time, time derivative of k is the second derivative of k, and second derivatives in space are the Laplacian in space. In fact, this is the so-called fundamental solution. K epsilon is the so-called fundamental solution for that equation, where epsilon um, is like the time in the, um, in the filtering. And as time increases, the averaging goes over a bigger uh, region uh, in, the, in the image. And the initial data for that, so you start with the, the uh, noisy image, and then you then you smear it out at an increasing over an increasingly air, incre, an increasing area over time. Now the um, now a new a new approach to that was um, ha, what came out in 1992 that that really changed everything, and the idea was to um, was developed by Lenny Rudin and Stan Osher. Here's a picture of Stan 
Um, he's one of the co-authors on this on, uh, that I've worked with, along with a, 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 um, a student, uh, Fatimi. And what they, they said was they would, um, they uh, posed a different method for doing denoising, which depended on a, a variational quantity V. V is a function of U and U0. U0 is the noisy image, as I said before, and U is going to be the denoised image. And the variational quantity is this. Um, you have the, dif the difference between U and U0. That's kind of a distance, of the, the square of that, and then integrated. That's kind of a distance between the noisy image and the denoised image. And then you add the, to that a, um, a so-called penalization term, the integral of absolute value of grad U, which is, um, which is intended to, um, to do some smoothing. Um, and, the, um, and what they solve then, again, is, a, is they evolve this in time according to a differential equation. And the differential equation is this one. It's the time derivative of U is the, uh, the so-called functional derivative of V minus the, the functional derivative of V, where, um, and that has the following kind of form to it. This, for, this part is, uh, is uh, not smooth, and you get a uh, grad U over the absolute value of grad U. So that, is, um, that has the direction of, of change of, of U in it. It's the divergence of that, and then minus lambda times U minus U0. So this, um, this pushes you towards U0, and, and this smooths out the, um, the image sum. Well, it's not exactly smoothing, and that's what I want to explain in the next slide, is that the, uh, the, here's, the, here's this variational principle. Lambda is what you call a Lagrange multiplier, and the, the problem here is to, um, can be stated as uh, minimizing this uh, so-called total variation measure or norm on U, the absolute, the, the integral of the, the uh, magnitude of the gradient of U. And, and then for a constant value of this U minus U zero, the integral of U minus U zero squared. Um, this total variation here that we're, that, that, uh, that you, we minimize um, comes up in differential equations it, it's in fact it's it's used to solve what are called nonlinear hyperbolic PDEs. These um, these describe fluid flows and particularly the formation of shocks in fluids. And the um, and they have the the following action in a in a shock. Um, a shock is a place where there's a a, a rapid change in the in the um, physical quantities like pressure and velocity and density in a gas. And what you want to do is promote steep gradients. You want something that keeps that, that keeps the shock. When you do a numerical computation, you want to keep the, sh the transition in the shock sharp. And this, um, this total variation term promotes steep gradients as, as in shocks um, and edges. And, and the, the, uh, the really the insight of, of, of Rudin, the Rudin-Osher method is that edges are what are dominant in images. And so if you have a method that promotes images, promotes edges in images, it will do a good job of denoising. So um, <clears throat> to compare this to the, to the Wiener filter, the, the uh, Rudin-Osher variational principle looks like this. The, um, an L1 alternative, an L2 alternative to that is instead of having absolute value, having absolute value squared, that's a smoother term. And um, 
the uh, Wiener filter, really, or which is related to the heat equation, is, uh, is the equation associated with, with, with um, minimizing the, or gradient descent for this um, variational quantity. So the, um, what the Wiener filter does, rather than promoting edges, is it, it uh, smooths them out. Um, and that's shown in the following picture, which is um, actually rather primitive by the standards of today, but was, a, but was revolutionary at the time, 25 years ago. Um, here, is a, here is an original image, um, which is a, kind of a made-up image used for uh, some optical purposes. And, the, um, and this is the noisy image. Here is denoising by, um, by the Wiener filter, and you see a lot of, you see that the edges are not very sharp. Here's denoising by the, by the um, total variation method. You see much sharper image, much sharper edges. You do see some other artifacts in this. Um, it's not perfect, and it still has some, a fair amount of noise in it. Uh, and, and the state of the art is much better than that, but at the time, this was a real breakthrough. And the, and the uh, method that they developed that achieved this breakthrough um, has gone on to do lots of other things. Um, here are some of the things that other things that it's done. Uh, it's it's done what's called segmentation in painting texture. Uh, segmentation's the following. Uh, we want to find the we want to we have an image that has some objects in it, um, and we want to find those objects. Here's an let me give an example. Here's an example of a, a cross-section of a brain scan. And um, for many reasons, you would like to find the, um, you'd like the computer to be able to find the, the, the boundary of the brain in this. A person can, can do it. You know, there's things that are difficult for a computer, but easy for a person. A person would easily draw the, what are the boundaries of the brain. However, a person can't do that a million times in an hour, and a computer can, hopefully. So uh, we want to teach computers to find the, the, the boundaries of this and using a method like the, um, the Rudin-Osher method, you start with a boundary and, the, and the, the brain scan and as you evolve in time, you get some intermediate result like this, which, doesn't get, which is doing a good job in some places but not in others. Here, this is a false boundary. And if you keep going with it, uh, you, get to the, you get to the full brain scan. This is a... Um, this is a, you follows a method of Tony Chan, the author of that book, with uh, Luminita Vesa from 2001. Um, what the other kind of thing you, another thing you would hope to do with this is, for example, is find tumors. Um, so that's done by, a, again, by a variational principle. Here are the variational quantity, E of gamma. Gamma is a, gamma is a, is a, a contour. It's that white circle that I started with which evolved then into the white boundary of the, the brain that we found. And it depends, it, it's, a, it's a combination of the, the length the, of, that, of that boundary and then <coughs> the difference between the, the, um, the image function u and, a, um, and an average m of x of gamma, the uh, average of u inside each component of gamma. Uh, this, was, this was preceded by an earlier variational principle by Mumford and Shaw. Uh, David Mumford is an, an, um, a brilliant algebraic geometer and had a rather different approach to this, which, which helped inspire this one. Um, this one is more tractable computationally. As I said, there are other things you can do as well, which I'll just describe 
without saying much more, in painting is, is um, how you can fill in, if you have parts of an image that are missing, you can try to fill that, that missing in, those missing parts in. That's in painting. Texture is something different. Texture is finding um, parts of an image that have a pattern to them, like the carpet that you see here, that, that, you, that uh, you don't need to describe perfectly. You need to get some sense of the texture of it, though. Um, now I'm going to go on to a second development in, in information science. Uh, what I'm trying to describe, um, um, well, excuse me, I'm going to talk about new methods in information science that don't come from the differential equations that are really something developed uh, within data science. Um, let's see, there's, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, um, an artifact in my slides that reflects the fact that I started, that I started giving this talk a few years ago before machine learning had really, really taken off. And I used the term information science rather than data science because in the, in the image processing um, application, the data is not so big and you really do it more or less one image at a time. You don't really take, in fact, you don't really take advantage of the fact that you have lots of images. To, to, and so you don't, there, the, 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 the emphasis was more on information than on data. And so I called it, so here and other places I say information science. Now I would say because of machine learning, the, the, um, the, the emphasis on the data is much stronger. And so I will, I've been changing from calling to calling it data science. So first I'm going to call, talk about what's called compressed sensing as an application. And then it'll be machine learning. So com uh, compressed sensing has to do with um, sparsity in data sets. So um, what we have is a signal. We think of a signal that, and I, which is a, which I'll call X. It's in Rn. That means it has n components to it. So you have n n uh, values that are coming in in this signal. Um, an example would be um, a um, a radio signal where you're receiving, you know, you at, at 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 each time there's a, a value for the, the um, amplitude that you're, that you're uh, measuring that's coming in. Um, and what we ask is this signal be sparse, M sparse. Um, there are N um, components to this signal, capital N, and we want the, the number of non-zero components to be much less than N. Now, um, if, if in what I, what I said was an example was a time-dependent signal, it's unlikely that it's going to be sparse, but what may, be, may very well be sparse is some kind of other representation of that signal, like a, like a, um, like a, um, a Fourier transform of it, a, a decomposition into frequencies. It may have a rather a limited number of frequencies in it. And so um, in, in some representation of the signal, we would expect it to be M sparse. Um, and um, um, that, that turns out to be quite common um, in, in images, in communications, in many, uh, many of the kinds of signals or images or other um, data sets that we get, although this, the, the um, a simple description of it, of the, of, the, um, of the data, might involve a large number of components, capital N, uh, uh, like a number of pixels on a, in an image. In fact, the, the image can be described by a rather small number of, of uh, data points, the uh, boundaries of objects in the image, for example. So that's where this sparsity comes from. 
And what we want to ask is, we want to take little end measurements <coughs> of this signal, um, and from that we would like to um, we would like to um, we would like to retrieve the whole signal x. Um, I should say what a measurement is. A measurement is some linear combination of the components of the signal. So we have the signal X that consists of capital N numbers. We multiply it by a matrix that is little n times capital N, and we get a measurement that has little n components. And um, the, um, <coughs> what we want to, we want to, um, we want to recreate X from this, from these measurements. So the question is, how many measurements are required? That is, what's the value of little n? And how hard is it to compute? Uh, is, it a, is it an easy problem, a tractable problem, or is it an intractable problem? Um, this question was answered spectacularly uh, um, about 10 years ago by um, two groups, well, four people, David Donahoe at Stanford, and then, and, and then this group, which was at uh, Caltech and UCLA. Emmanuel Candes was a, was a um, David Donahoe's the first person here. Second is Emmanuel Candes. He was a student of Donahoe, but was working at uh, Caltech at the time. Justin Romberg was a grad student, and Terry Tao uh, was at UCLA. Terry Tao is the, I think, uh, he's a name that I hope is familiar. He's, I would say, the, the most exciting mathematician in the world by some measure. And, and certainly is a, a, just a, an absolute genius and has done many, worked in many fields. Um, so they developed this method called compressed sensing, and I want to describe that. So here's the statement of the problem. We want to find x that's m sparse. That means it has only m non-zero components. And it solves ax equals f. These are the measurements. And uh, we, we assume that it's m sparse. The, um, this would be easy if we knew which components were, were non-zero, which of the m, which m components are non-zero out of the capital N total components, but we don't. We have to find that. A standard method would be to minimize the so-called um, zero norm of x subject to this constraint. The zero norm just counts the number of components. The, um, the compressed sensing method is different. Instead, it uses not the zero norm, but the so-called one norm, which sums up the absolute values of, of the, X, the components of x, subject to this constraint, ax equals f. So we minimize this sum subject to that constraint. The, um, here's a statement of the problem again. The standard method requires um, little n to be capital N. You can't do better than just looking at every component. And um, <coughs> that is the number of equations is equal to the number of unknowns. Um, compressed sensing, though, does something much better. It requires little n, the number of measurements, to be cap little m, the number of um, non-zero components, and then, a, a, then a, a penalty term that's log of capital N. Um, if capital N is big and much, and much, much bigger than m, this is, this is little n this way will be much less than capital N. And so we will have many fewer equations and unknowns. Um, so that's a success. We, we, we beat out the, the standard method. The compressed sensing beats out the standard method. Moreover, the solution that you get um, is exact with high probability. 
um, that's, that comes from this so-called reduced isometry property. And finally, it's, it, can be, it can be computed by a, a, um, a relatively tractable method called convex programming. Um, the standard method is NP-hard. It's intractable um, for, if for large N. And the compressed sensing method is tractable. And although there's not a, there's not a, um, a, proof, a mathematical proof of the speed of it or, or even a formula for the speed of it, in practice, it turns out to be quite fast. Um, I'd like to give a, a um, I'd like to give a, a little explanation for how this compressed sensing works. In a simple example, I have two examples here. I'm, only, I'm, only, I'm going to go through just one of them. Um, the um, what we'd like to do is minimize the absolute the uh, the L1 norm of x subject to the constraint that. Uh, a1x1 plus a2x2 is f. Here, capital N is 2. We have two components, x1 and x2. Um, <coughs> little n is going to be 1. We have one measurement, which is this sum multiplied by two, co two uh, coefficients. Here's a picture of how that works. The, um, <coughs> the L1, the, uh, so in this picture, the, uh, the um, the um, axes are x1 and x2. The line a1x1 plus a2x2 equals f, that's this line here. Um, and, the, um, and then the diamond shape here, the diamond shape is the circle measured in the L1 norm. It's the, the L1 norm is the sum of the absolute values of x1 and x2. So for example, if you look along, if you look along this line, the sum x1 plus x2 is, is, um, is constant on that line. And constant here, well, it's constant if you use the absolute value. So absolute value of x1 plus absolute value of x2. So this is a, this is a, um, this, the boundary of this diamond, except for my little errors in drawing it, is where um, is the, the sphere in, or the circle in L1. And, and what we want to find is the point on this line that is that satisfies this that has the smallest L1 norm. So if you the uh, and that point is here. Any other point would require a larger diamond, and um, uh, and so would have a, a bigger L1 norm. So that the the minimal point is this one, and this has that point is has the special property that uh, x1 is zero there. So in fact, you find that unless the unless this line was was 45 degrees. Its intersection with a, with the L1 circle would always be at one of these corner points. You can you can kind of see why as you move a line toward it. This is the first thing you hit, and so uh, you you always zero out one of the components, and it's that zeroing out of the one of the components that's the source of the sparsity in the compressed sensing. Let me go on to the next um, new method in, in data science that I'll describe, which is machine learning. Um, I dare say that the mathematicians among you will have heard of compressed sensing. Probably the non-mathematicians haven't, or not, not ver very much. But I dare say everybody's heard of machine learning. Um, the, um, I called this the machine learning eruption which was in 2012, 
there was this um, machine learning just took off. There was um, there was these these really public announcements of the of the new capability. The first one was kind of amusing. Was for a, for a, you know just for a layperson, it was kind of hard to understand what was going on. But the um, uh, computer scientists at, at Stanford uh, gave a computer access to um, internet videos. I guess it was YouTube videos, and the computer learned um, to identify cats. There's a lot of cat images on the internet. Everybody loves cats, um, and um, and so it learned that just by not by being told anything about cats, but just by looking at at by by analyzing uh, images. There was also dramatic improvement in object identification and, um, and in voice recognition. Um, and, and the progress from machine learning, especially this uh, method called deep learning, this, the progress has just been absolutely dramatic. It's hard to believe it's only been five years. Uh, and in things like text translation, the text translation about two years ago, there was a huge leap forward in text translation uh, that was made possible by machine learning. Um, Things like credit rating for personal loans, um, that's something that you probably don't see happening, but it, but it is happening. Um, uh, autonomous vehicles uh, are um, much of the, what the autonomous vehicle, how it works is based on machine learning. Um, individualized medicine is something that isn't there yet, but, but um, hopefully will be there soon. And much of it will be powered by machine learning um, based on the, the, all the medical data that's available to, um, to, to um, analyze a person, an, in, an individual's medical data, would be analyzed compared to the whole trove of, of, um, of all data. Or of what's the, the and, um, and the remarkable part is there's no end in sight. It's, it's really quite amazing. We really don't know at this point whether um, machine learning is going to be able to answer every question that a person can pose. I think that seems kind of fantastical, but nobody can say that it's not going to happen. But we also can't say that it might stop working tomorrow. You know, that it might not do, that it might not do very many new things. Um, I also don't think that's very likely. It's going to probably be somewhere in between, but there's a lot of room in between. We don't know where it's going to we won't, really don't know where it's going to end up. Um, the, the, the dramatic progress was made by a particular machine learning method called deep learning. <coughs> it was done by three different groups uh, who, which, with a lot of connections between them. Jeff, Jeffrey Hinton at, in, in Montreal, Jan LeCun at NYU, um, Jeffrey Hinton's at University of Montreal, and Andrew Ng at Stanford. Then the um, deep learning is based on neural nets. The deep part is that they are many layers deep. Let me show you a picture of that. Here's a, here's a schematic of a neural net. Uh, there's an input layer. So you, your input, input, like for the cat videos, the input would be the, these images. The input layer would go here to the nodes of the net. Um, out, and, and the output would be over at, at this end. Um, which would um, which would say um, it, the cat would be identified as a lot of them. It would it would say these images have 
are, are, are something that we identify as being similar. So we would group all those together, and the humans would then interpret that as that's a cat. Uh, in between, there are many layers. Here are, here are two, but um, there, there might be 10, there might be 100 layers. Uh, and what there are are connections between these nodes. The um, information flows from this node to, 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 that, to that inner node, and then to the next node, and then finally to that node, and so forth. And the, and they are the, um, the information that coming into each node is combined in some way. This is all, this is all done to, to, to approximate some desired function, y equals f of x. And that, that desired function is defined by the, um, a training data set, x, m, and y, m. The m is supposed to indicate that there, are, there might be a million of these points of data, or 100 million, or even billions, uh, of values of xm, so each xm could be, for example, an image, um, or it could be a medical data set for an individual. And each ym <coughs> is, the, um, is the answer to some question that you pose about that, about that data. Um, it could be, it could be you, you want to categorize the data in, in some way, it could be that you want to um, um, you want to recognize words in um, in some in in some um, oral uh, some sound, um, or it could be you want to translate words. So that's both supposed to be done by this network. Let me say a little bit more how the how the network works. Um, the inputs at the at a, is at some lowest level, which is x. That's those are the values at the lowest level. Each node NK gets inputs XI from the previous layer, and, um, and it has an output YK to the next layer. So what you do is you take the inputs XI, you add, take some linear combination of those inputs with coefficients A sub IK, and then you, you form that sum, and then you apply a function to it F. Um, and, um, and you do that from one layer to the next until you get to the output. Here's a Here's a picture of that, where I've drawn a, I drew this one by hand myself. Well, I drew it by computer. Um, and so I didn't, uh, you know, I, was, I didn't want to put in too many layers. So I've put in three layers, and in, uh, um, but they should be somewhere embedded within the whole larger uh, thing that might be 100 layers. And I've, I've, I've made it so each node has input to the three next nodes in the layer. So if I look here at this, K, at this point K, it has an input from its three nearest neighbors in the previous layer. So, um, <coughs> so here are the, here is, it takes the value, the, the previous value at this node, the value at this node and this node, and it adds them together with these coefficients that, that correspond to the coefficients is attached to the, um, to the, um, um, uh, to the connector. Um, so um, that's this sum, AIK, and then you apply a function F to it. F is some prescribed function. The, the function F isn't too important. It's usually something that looks like that. It goes between a value 0 and 1 uh, rather sharply. And um, the important part are the, are the weights, the AIKs. So the weights, the, uh, the learning in, in machine learning or in deep learning 
is the determination of these coefficients a, i, k. Um, um, now, I should say that I'm describing a, a rather simplified version of this. There are many, you know, just like with the imaging, that the, what I showed was rather um, early versions of image processing and denoising. The same is true here. There's tremendous progress in machine learning. In fact, I, I heard a talk by one machine learning person recently that said, um, anything, you, anything you talk about or write is out of date because as soon as, it, as soon as people hear it or read it, they go work on it and they improve on it. And so it's a tremendously rapidly growing field. And so anything I describe here is going to be only uh, an indication of what's being done and there will be better things, undoubtedly, that, that would be done. For example, you could be changing the, uh, the, the connectors, how, the, the way that the, node, that the nodes are connected with each other. The, uh, the progress in machine learning um, is remarkable in some ways because um, it, this method of neural nets went back to the um, about 40 years. It was really, it was started, well actually it goes back much further than that, but it was, but it was really started in, in a more intensive way in the 70s and received a lot of attention in the 70s as a, oh, for use in financial applications and, all, and, and a number of other things. It was, but, um, but then people weren't able to do much with it. It wasn't, it, it turned out not to work very well. And, um, and there, were this, there was this diehard group led by um, Jeff Hinton, at the one in Montreal, who kept plugging away at it. And, um, and I'm sure to them it looked like they made gradual progress and then, and then, it, then it took off. To an outsider, it looked like they went from zero to, to um, the speed of sound or the speed of light or something. It seemed like they went from zero to, to you know, to um, 60 in, um, uh, in a very small, short time. And there were some enablers for that. You know, looking back at it, there were some things that enabled that. The first was massive data sets. It turned out that they needed a lot of data. To make this method work, you need a lot of data. And those weren't really available until you had the until the internet. So that that wasn't so that wasn't available in the 70s. Another one was faster computers. In particular, they relied on uh, GPUs, graphical processing units. That gave a tremendous boost in computing. <clears throat> and then they also had new algorithms. Um, one of them was uh, used compressed sensing ideas, which was that they. Um, they, they, they compressed the optimization by setting many of the weights, the A's, that you have to determine. They, they, in finding those, if, if, the A, if the value of A was small, they set it back to zero. Sometimes they did that randomly, sometimes they did it in a deterministic way, but, but there was a compressed sensing element to it. Um, some, of them, some of the people working on this knew about compressed sensing and so did that quite consciously. Others just found that this was a a, um, a beneficial method, a beneficial thing to do, both because it sped up the optimization, but also it made it more robust. Another example is the so-called stochastic gradient descent. Um, the, um, the, the finding the weights is an optimization task. It's a difficult one, especially because you, you have all this, all this data that goes into it. And the uh, stochastic gradient descent was a way to use one, pe one piece of data at a time. 
not, not having to use all of them together. Right, so um, um, I'm going to go on now. I can't, you know, I, I think that this um, machine learning is endlessly fascinating because it has been so um, transformative of many things that are going on around us, technology, uh, technology and society. I want to go on, and though, and, and talk about the, um, some applications of both compressed sensing and machine learning in um, physical science and PDEs. So the first is compressed sensing, and the, what, I, I'm working with a group that's, that's um, uh, tr trying to use compressed sensing ideas in physical science. Um, <coughs> and we, what we want to obtain is sparsity and localization in space. So um, compressed, <coughs> compressed sensing produces sparse sets of coefficients with, um, for a given set of modes. Uh, here, instead of modes, we would think of the, the values of a function at, at, at point-wise. And um, this is related to uh, uh, earlier efforts in, in physics in so-called density functional theory called Wannier functions. Density functional theory is the description of quantum mechanics uh, where, you, um, where you consider uh, the, um, the density of electrons in the, in the, in the, um, the, the matter. And um, from that, from the density of a single electron, you're actually able to reconstruct the um, the the, uh, the full many-body um, density. So we are we're using we're we're uh, constructing what you call com what we call compressed modes. These are are like eigenmodes, but eigenmodes typically are not localized; they are spatially extended. And um, a benefit of having localized modes. For example, in the DFT context, uh, you have a function psi, the wave function. The absolute value of psi squared is an electron density. And the, um, the local, the, a mode being localized would for, correspond to, for example, that uh, an electron is primarily um, localized around a single atom, even, even if it's part of a larger crystal or a larger compound. Um, and that, that um, leads to both um, simpler simpler physics understanding, and also faster computation. So um, a DFT method's order n cubed, where n is the number of elements in the, that you're trying to produce. And, and, um, and there's a hope to get order one methods into the first power um, using, um, using things like these compressed modes or Wannier functions. Uh, here's a more technical description of that. We start with a. We start with a uh, variational quantity that looks like this. Uh, it's, the, uh, it's the square of the derivative of the wave function psi sub x and uh, a potential v times psi squared. <coughs> the uh, eigenmode would be determined by minimizing this quantity j subject to some normalization that the integral of psi squared is 1. And that leads to a differential equation, the Schrodinger equation for psi. The, the eigenfunction, the, the eigenmode um, for the Schrodinger equation. What we would do is we would add to that a, um, an L1 term. Before I had a, um, a, dis a discrete set of components, so the L1 term was the sum of absolute values. Now we have a function that's continuous, so the L1 norm is the integral. And I don't think it says it here, does it? 
this is the integral of the absolute value of psi in, in x. Um, and so we have that, in, that integral term in our variational principle. That leads to an additional term in this differential equation, which is, which is like the, the signum of psi. I called it psi tilde because we're, it's, it's not the same as this psi 1 because we are uh, including this extra L1 term, this extra penalization term. Um, this is actually what you call a subgradient because the, the, the absolute value isn't, isn't differentiable. And so we have um, at the, um, when psi 1 goes to 0, this subgradient term, the generalization of signum, can be anything between minus 1 and 1. Here's an example of how that works on the so-called Kronig-Penny model. Kronig-Penny model corresponds to um, atoms at these locations, and the corresponding potential is flat, except in the neighborhood of those atoms where, it's, it's, where it has a much lower value. These are potential energies. This is like a, a landscape in which there are uh, a series of wells. Here's the solutions of that. Um, um, Yes, this doesn't quite correspond to my previous picture because it's 3D, and the, but the modes are these. Each of one of these is a mode, and you see our modes are localized around the atoms. Um, the second application is on, um, um, is on a radio transmission, and it's what's called signal fragmentation for transmitting low-frequency signals. Uh, I'm not going to describe that here. Instead, that's going to be a talk I'm going to give tomorrow in this, this workshop that, that, uh, that Nader mentioned. Um, but now I'll say something about machine learning. Um, uh, this is something that is in, that's in process now. It has not really been finished. There are some promising signs for it, though. What we'd like to do is apply uh, machine learning to, to a PDE. A PDE is some function of a, 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 a applied to, we have, we have a function u that we're trying to find, and, and, um, and then there's some relation between u and its derivatives, as well as some data w. Um, and so that we, we can solve this equation and find the function u, that's, that's the PDE, and, um, and then we have a desired figure, some, some, some piece of information we want from that, I'll call it y, that's some function of u that comes out of this differential equation. So the idea of using machine learning is, first of all, we need data. So we would, what we would do is solve this equation, so this, this differential equation, we would solve it for many pieces of the, of the boundary or initial data, w, that could be, um, that could be, say, um, if if you were were weather, were, was a description of weather, um, you could say be pressures or or wind velocities at very, you know, all, all in some region, and uh, the data W could be um, could be something like um, a measured data from from weather stations, and so from weather stations you would like to from weather stations you would like you'd solve some differential equations to find the weather everywhere in a region. Uh, and then, then F might be, a, might be a prediction, is it going to rain tomorrow? Or something like that. Some, some, some information that comes out of this, of the, the, you go from the data to, the, um, to, the, to, a, a, to a solution, and then you find some information from that solution. 
So we do that many times for many pieces of data. Uh, here, the, the, uh, this would be a computation. This could be a combination of measured measurements and also, a co and, and also computations. If we, the amount of data we want is large. So um, actually, for weather, you have large amounts of data. Uh, it's not clear if that would be enough. So, um, <clears throat> so then we would train a neural net on this data. Oh, then we would have a, this figure of merit, like is it going to rain tomorrow, for each of our, of our um, solutions. And so we would get fi for each wi, and i would, you know, would, be, would run over some large set of numbers. And then we would train a neural net on this data. So what we could do then for some new data that came in w, we could, um, we could quickly, we could, if we train this neural net, then we could quickly find the prediction without going through the solution of the differential equation, which is relatively difficult to do. We could run the neural net and quickly approximate the actual solution. Um, the example I have here isn't as interesting as, da as weather data, uh, but it is, it's, it's a piece of quantum mechanics. It's calculating the, um, using machine learning to calculate the so-called atomization energy. And that's been carried out by a group led by these people. Um, um, uh, Karen Burke is a chemist at UC Irvine. Graham Henkelman's a chemist in Texas. And um, Robert, uh, Klaus Mueller, Klaus Robert Mueller, is a computer scientist in Berlin and, and a group of others. Um, I have to put in the plug that this started at IPAM. Um, here's what the atomization energy is. You have a compound. It's held together. It's held together by, by bonds between the atoms of the compound. Um, this compound exists and stable because the, um, the atoms prefer to be bonded to each other. It's energetically favorable. So if you want to break it up, it takes some energy to break it up. And um, if you do that, <coughs> then um, some, the, it, you, the atomization energy is the energy required to break it up into these constituent atoms. So they have been, uh, they have been using machine learning methods to, um, to predict um, uh, atomization energies, which, which computationally would, take, would uh, require uh, density functional calculations that, are, that are, are difficult to do. Uh, I'm going to finish up. Um, by um, talking about the limitations of machine learning, I, I think it's appropriate. Uh, it's, um, the um, machine learning is so influential and powerful, and um, um, there's so much talk and buzz and even hype about machine learning, it's important to say what some of, some of the things that are limitations of it. This is not to, this is not to um, put down, though, the enormous potential and enormous um, accomplishments that have come from machine learning. The first of all is that the machine learning results are only as good as the data. There's a lot of concern that there's bias in, you know, the, the data sets that people have are biased. Uh, for example, um, genetic data sets are predominantly, um, you know, Caucasians from, of European ancestry. That's, that, 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 maybe that's not so true anymore, but it was true some years ago. Um, um, there is, you know, data sets do come often with bias, and we, have, we need to know about that because that bias will be um, reproduced in whatever's learned by the machine. Um, <clears throat> here are some connections to other approaches also. One of them is um, if you're an optimization person, you wouldn't necessarily be satisfied with 
the, the way that they determine their coefficients, um, because this is a very non-convex problem, there are, many there are many local minima, and they don't get to the, they don't, they, they don't have much hope of getting to the absolute minima. Uh, they will get to a, um, um, a local minima, local optimum. Um, nevertheless, that seems to work pretty well in spite of that. Another, another um, um, limitation is that it's, it's difficult to, to, um, to estimate a statistical reliability of the machine learning results. And um, that's something that statisticians certainly worry about. Um, and it, um, it, I think it has been a problem a few times when machine learning predictions have been off. Um, an example has been um, um, uh, the, the use of data to predict um, to predict flu outbreaks, and I think the data that I think the conclusions they came to were were, were not very accurate, and that's probably a, an example of this. Um, another another thing is that it, it, we often don't know how or why machine learning works. Um, for example, if you, take the, the, if you take the example of a cat and the, the, the uh, computer learning what a cat was, what it really learned was that, that, that there was a whole set of images that had something that had a similarity in them. And it grouped those together. And it takes a person coming and looking at, at what it's done and saying, oh, yeah, that's cats. So it's, it's in that sense. But it doesn't know what a cat is. And um, I don't think we have a mathematical description of what it would say that a computer knows what a cat is. People are working on that, though. You know, a cat is, in a sense, a cat is all is the sum of your experiences with cats and your ability to describe what a cat does. And, but an, another example of this would be um, we might, we can, we can um, estimate atomization energies from, you know, by machine learning, but we probably can't describe quantum physics. So we, we, we don't know how to describe quantum physics, so we, 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 we can get information. We can't necessarily get wisdom or, um, from our lessons from this learning. Another related theme is the mathematical foundations for machine learning. Um, there's a, there is a result that, that, that neural nets are universal computers. You know, they can do anything a, a Turing machine can do. There is a, um, a step toward this, I think, is... Um, is, um, uh, I think, a brilliant piece of work by Stefano Sawato, who recently moved from UCLA to Caltech and Amazon, which gives an, an information theoretic um, description of deep learning uh, using, you know, using entropy and, 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 um, and information flow. But still, there's no mathematical, ex no mathematical explanation for the remarkable um, efficacy of machine learning and um, I think that's a great, to the mathematicians here, I think that's a great challenge. I said that was going to be the last slide, but, but here, the, here, this is the final one. Uh, this, this talk is, um, is part of a workshop on new trends in partial differential equations, and it honors these two, these two people, uh, Jalal Shata and Fanhua Lin, who are uh, brilliant scientists and mathematicians and also extraordinary nice and um, warm people. And, it's, and happy birthday to the two of them. Thank you.
You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.